This is High School Not So Much a Musical, a podcast that takes you on a ride through the peaks and valleys of a high school journey. Here are your presenters, Nitin Jalodanki and Ayush Agarwal. Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of High School Not So Much a Musical. Today we're joined by a very special guest, Mr. Stan Efferding, who has world record, t- world record titles in both bodybuilding and powerlifting has uh, started up dozens of businesses and has experience in both the fitness industry, business, and the health and fitness. So uh, Mr. Stan Afferding, if you could give an introduction about yourself, you know, who you are, what you've done over the years, that'd be awesome. Yeah, thanks guys for having me on. You know, I, I played soccer and I wrestled in high school and I had a soccer scholarship, and, uh, but I was only weighed about 135 pounds as a 18 year old freshman in college. So my coach told me to go lift weights. And I spent a few months lifting weights that summer and uh, I never came back. I told coach uh, I was done. I wasn't going to play soccer. Uh, believe it or not, my, my skinny little self, a, a whopping 135, 140, I determined I was going to be a professional bodybuilder. That was my dream. That was my goal. Uh, highly unlikely, of course, at that size, at that time, uh, at almost six feet tall at the time, uh, you had to be about 250 pounds on stage in order to compete again in bodybuilding because they didn't have uh, heavyweight was everything over 198. And at my height, I certainly had to be a heavyweight. So I, uh, you know, I, I kept going to school and I started studying. I got a degree in psychology and then I enrolled in their exercise science program, got a science degree anatomy, phys, biology, kines, you know, those kinds of things. And uh, I was lifting all through this time. I, I did a bodybuilding show in 1988 after about uh, two, two and a half years of lifting. And I weighed 158 pounds on stage. And so I was still quite thin, but my, my dream was still the same. I was reading Muscle and Fitness Magazine every week and learning everything I could and studying exercise science. I eventually became a high school soccer coach and then uh, as I kept getting bigger and stronger and competing more and more throughout the years and ultimately won the uh, uh, Mr. Oregon at a whopping 200 pounds on, on my journey, uh, I started uh, coaching University of Oregon football and track athletes. Um, I was living there in Eugene, Oregon, uh, and that's Track Town USA. So of course I was working with some of the best uh, track athletes in the world and the University of Oregon football team was actually a Rose Bowl uh, uh, went to the Rose Bowl in 1995 and I was working with a lot of those players. So I kind of, uh, I, I worked at gyms. I was a personal trainer, um, you know, everything I could to stay involved in that industry. It was hard to make a living at it though. So I had to, to work a number of different jobs, but ultimately I did become an IFBB pro bodybuilder and a world record power lifter, uh, just, uh, out of sheer determination and, and desire and took many, many, many years. So that's kind of my history of how I got involved in, in that sport. Okay, perfect. So I can move us on to our next question. Thank you for the introduction. So you reached like the pinnacle of fitness in of the fitness industry in terms of establishing multiple businesses. So could you talk a little bit about each of the entrepreneurial processes by which you went by to create them? And then we can also get later to the um, business that you're able to pitch on Shark Tank. Yeah, you know, it started as a young age. I, I had a paper route when I was eight. I worked at a deli counting cans. Uh, my mom was uh, making sandwiches when I was 10 years old. And I got a job at 7-Eleven when I was 12 years old. Uh, you know, dusting shelves and stocking the cooler and uh, counting cans, that kind of thing. And I worked there for four years and uh, picked up, you know, periodic jobs here and there. Worked at a pizza place, flipping pizzas. And, uh, and then when I went to college, I, I did construction to, uh, to help make money, put myself through college. And I managed apartment complexes, small apartments. I was a resident assistant in the dorms. And, and then I managed some small apartment places for free rent, basically. And I would paint and clean and collect rents in, in order to have free housing. Uh, and I worked as a personal trainer as well. I worked at a gym trying to help people, uh, teach people to lift and that kind of thing. After I graduated, uh, I was still personal training and I was selling supplements. I was packing a bunch of supplements into a van and driving up and down the I-5 corridor there in the Northwest, Oregon, Washington, going from gym to gym and making shakes and trying to sell people protein powders and the like. And uh, I took a job at an apartment community and I was just a maintenance man. It was a large apartment community. And I just uh, I just worked hard there for many years and I became assistant manager and eventually manager and eventually we developed 
200 more units. It's a $15 million expansion on the project. And I was running a 600 unit apartment community with 40 employees. And so I guess the, the, the nature of all that is just to say that, uh, and then I got hired by another apartment community, which was a real estate investment trust that owned, uh, you know, over a billion dollars in properties nationwide. And I ran that for them. I uh, had 60 employees and over 1,200 units under my supervision. And then I took a job as a vice president of a telecommunications company. And uh, I guess the, the point of all that is just to say that before I ever started a business, I was 35 years old and I had significant experience both in multifamily real estate, customer service, and telecommunications. And that's what my first two businesses were in 19, uh, or when I was 35 years old, I opened up uh, uh, a telecommunications company just out of my apartment. And I also sold my home and cashed in my 401k. And I uh, invested with a partner to buy a small apartment community. It was about uh, 46 units. And I had some sweat equity. I didn't have enough cash really to, to get a, an equal position in that thing. So I had to run it. I had to live in it and run it. And so I ran my telephones company out of that apartment, a little three bedroom apartment that I lived in. And the telephone company was, was a startup. So I was knocking on doors and getting people to sign up for phone service. And, uh, you know, just fast forwarding, we, uh, we were able to improve that apartment community and increase the rents and sell it and start buying other apartment communities and the telecommunications company. I was able to eventually run uh, commercials. And within a couple of years, I had 100 employees in 20 states servicing over 100,000 telephone lines and uh, generating 25 million a year in, in revenue. So uh, I guess the point of that whole thing is to say that I, I only started businesses that I had experience in for the most part and that I had uh, personal control over that I was operating myself. I, I still have that mindset. It's that, um, that if you aren't managing your asset and you don't have significant knowledge of the business, then uh, I think you're much less likely to succeed. I eventually started an engineering firm uh, after the real estate market collapsed. I had owned hundreds of apartment units and uh, had built dozens of single family homes and subdivisions and commercial real estate. And the, uh, the market collapsed in 2008. And uh, you know, we lost $4 trillion in value nationwide. And you know, I personally lost $20 million in, in assets overnight. And so it was a bit of a struggle. So I had... I had uh, I've been wealthy and, and been poor and uh, rebuilt it again. Uh, now I've you know built since three more multi-million dollar companies, the engineering firm. Um, I built up the cooler, which we'll talk about with the Shark Tank, and then the vertical diet. Now I have a nationwide meal prep company and I uh, do seminars and sell uh, eBooks online and do online training and stuff like that. And so I uh, just kept hammering away, doing things that I've always been familiar with and good at. And uh, I've been real successful as a result. Yeah, the fact that you were able to like, you know, lift weights and still focus on bodybuilding while you while you did like and while you owned all these different companies and businesses is kind of crazy because like, especially um, at, at the start of this, you mentioned that like when you were in your teenage years, you worked at grocery stores in 7-Eleven and like that's pretty young to be working like um, in stores. And uh, you were still you mentioned you were playing soccer and then you focused on weightlifting and bodybuilding. And that's pretty stressful. And especially for like us high schoolers nowadays, especially because Ayush, um, Nidin and I, we go to like a private school that's mainly STEM focused. We're focused a lot on like our AP scores, um, standardized testing. So like, why do you think it's important for like teenagers to live like a healthy lifestyle? Like what are the benefits that will make it worthwhile to spend a few hours each week exercising and like eating right? You know, you can take a deep dive into this in my video, my Rhino's rant called Stress for Success, where I talked about how uh, certain times in my life, I let stress overwhelm me and I became less productive. And the foundational principles of that video and, and uh, as for, you know, how I was able to be successful uh, is I just was disciplined with uh, first and foremost sleep. Uh, sleep improves retention uh, when you're studying. It's not what you read that day it's, it's what you're able to retain the next day and, and getting adequate sleep obviously uh, REM sleep in particular which is a stage of sleep that helps um, you know create those memories and, and connections uh, those sleep stages REM and stage four sleep get longer and longer the longer you sleep and so it's about a 90 minute clock um, they call sleep stages each stage is about 90 minutes 
And each subsequent stage throughout the night has a longer REM and stage four restorative sleep. And so getting seven plus hours, uh, getting into your fourth stage, ideally, uh, would give you the optimal uh, benefit for studying and retention of that information. So sleep became, you know, a foundational principle, obviously for energy uh, was also very important. Exercise is another one that improves cognition and relieves stress. And I would do that, uh, I would recommend to do that as I have for the last decade or more periodically throughout the day instead of one bout at the end of the day. Uh, has a lot to do, uh, it helps both with, you know, after what they call postprandial glycemia, after a meal, how high your blood sugars elevate and how long they stay elevated. And if, uh, if you eat and then go take a 10 or 15 minute walk, um, you substantially reduce that postprandial glycemia, uh, which helps you with more energy, uh, you know, better health, better digestion, uh, just kind of restarts the clock. You, you can't really, you know, a lot of research has been done in psychology about uh, studying and retention of information. And you're, you know, going past, say, an hour, hour and a half tops, uh, you've kind of tapped out your, your resources in terms of your ability to, to keep, uh, you know, studying and retaining adequate information from that session. So you're kind of better off taking small breaks about every 45 minutes or so and getting up and moving around and then revisiting that topic or a different topic. And I used to do that in college. I had four classes. I would just have to assign one hour to each class because if I sat there and tried to obtain all the information I could, I would take too long and it wouldn't be very effective. And so I would set smaller goals. I would spend 45 minutes studying a particular topic and a 15 minute break, I would come back and spend 45 minutes studying a different class, a different topic. And I would continue to do that uh, throughout college. I also packed my meals, which was a huge relief for me, so I could have regular the food that I wanted on, on the on the time frame that I that I wanted it, as opposed to you know getting voraciously hungry and then going and cramming down a bunch of garbage. And maintaining a, a sensible body weight is pretty important in terms of uh, 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 you know insulin sensitivity and hormones and sleep. So really, that's the foundation of it. Is I was just organized and I, I just made sure, and it didn't take a huge investment to take a few 10 minute walks a day and to organize my meals and to make sure that I, I prioritized sleep uh, rather than, you know, trying to pull all nighters. And uh, so that that's kind of the way that I managed myself through, uh, you know, working hard to develop my businesses as well. I maintained that foundation of regular exercise, uh, a healthy diet and uh, a, a good sleep uh, behavior, good sleep patterns. Yeah. So you mentioned how, um, you would organize your food like in the morning before you went to school stuff like yeah. that and um a lot of like t um teenagers they're like eating like shit the entire day um yeah. they'll be up to like like 2 a.m like just stuffing garbage down their throat and then they'll be yeah. waking up at like 6 a.m because they have to go to school and um like you said you organize your own meals so do you think it's beneficial for teenagers to like um start maybe cooking a little bit so that they know what they're putting into their meals instead of like yeah. going to like McDonald's and getting a Big Mac and they don't even know like if that's even like real meat. So do you think like it's beneficial yeah. for them to start cooking? Here's the big thing, it saves time, it saves money obviously, but in terms of health, it's hard to find sufficient protein, quality protein sources when you go to fast food. Like, like you mentioned, burgers at McDonald's, that's a 75-25 beef that has its equivalent to a hot dog really in terms of its fatty content and its saturated fat content. It's just not optimal for health and performance. So uh, I like to keep about 30% of my calories as protein. I, I lead with protein. I try and get a gram of protein per pound of body weight. That's hard to do uh, doing fast food uh, or, uh, you know, obviously from any vending machine or anything like that. So here's the trick that I did. And, and this kind of came from bodybuilding at a young age in college is that just about everybody in that industry, the bodybuilding figure, physique, bikini, wellness, whatever you want to call it, they meal prep. They're always walking around with plastic containers with their food in it, their six pack bag. The problem is, is that the food in those containers gets cold and gets old and tastes like shit. So I uh, eventually later in my career, I came across uh, an idea to start using one of those uh, double insulated thermos. So I could put a hot meal in it and it would stay hot for 10 hours. Now I travel all over the world. I've done over 200 seminars in 12 countries in all 50 states. And sometimes I'll fly internationally for multiple days or a week at a time. 
And when I'm on planes, I when I leave the house to go to the airport, I have enough meals packed in thermos, hot meals, to get me to my destination. And then I put some, you know, I mentioned I have a, a meal prep company. So I'll put some of my frozen meal prep food, which you could make at home yourself and freeze the night before, into my carry-on luggage. And then when I get to my destination, I stay at a hotel that has a microwave. And I can cook my own meals while I'm there working and use the same thermos so that when I leave my hotel room in the morning, I have sufficient meals to get me through until I get back in the evening. And that might be, say, two or three thermos, depending on, you know, the individual's, you know, their, their meal frequency and the amount of calories they need. But uh, that little 24 ounce thermos on Amazon costs $20. And I got to tell you, it's been life changing. And I don't make any money saying that, but I'm able to maintain a very healthy diet and never have to eat fast food. I never have to eat airplane food uh, or airport food or room service, you know, at hotels. Uh, I eat my food, which is generally higher protein, uh, has usually a two to one protein to fat ratio because I like to keep fats under control. Uh, so, it, you know, it feels good on me and I'm, you know, I have great energy. And so I would encourage, uh, and I have a video uh, called, I think it's uh, uh, prepping food for traveling or something, which would equally apply to school. And, you know, you just wake up in the morning and while I'm making breakfast, I'm just making three times as much food as I would eat for breakfast. And the other two go in my thermos and, uh, you know, I, I pop them into my bag and you just put them in your book bag and uh, you're on the, on the road. You don't have to worry about anything until eight o'clock at night when you get back for dinner. And I have to say this on this topic, and just in terms of learning, uh, sometimes people don't understand that uh, there is a science to learning. Uh, we always implemented, when I was teaching in school, the Feynman technique. Some of you may have heard of that, F-E-Y-N-M-A-N, uh, I believe, the Feynman technique. And, uh, it has kind of a four-step process. You choose a topic you want to learn about, and you write down everything you know about it, and then you go about learning about it, whether it's watching videos or reading information on it, and you continue to write that down. And so you have everything that you know about a certain topic written on a piece of paper, and then you explain it to someone. You teach it to someone else. They say you don't really learn anything until you've taught it to someone else, but you teach it to someone as though they were a 12-year-old, not in a complicated fashion, but in a very simple fashion so that they can understand it and so that you know you understand it. And then you can go back and reflect and refine and simplify that message and uh, you know, organize it and review it. Uh, but really, uh, if, if, you, if you aren't able to write down everything that you know about a topic and teach it to someone else, you probably haven't learned it. Yeah, and I think there's that like famous Albert Einstein quote, you know, everything should be made as simple as possible, but no simpler. Uh, and I think, in like the fitness industry right now, what I've seen with uh, like, for example, Joel Seedman and people like those who try to overcomplicate everything, you know, they make up terms like 90 degree eccentric isometrics and they, they come up with all this stuff so they can, you know, sell their programs or, you know, get more likes on Instagram or whatever. But what I've liked about you is that you keep it simple, you know, vertical diet, steak and rice diet, get your micronutrients in and uh, optimize your hormones and get enough sleep. Uh, yeah. And and then I'm repeating the... myself over and over yeah. again because I, I don't want to get down into the weeds and start arguing about stuff that's really inconsequential. It's not terribly meaningful. And so I've kind of run out of content. Once you watch my rants and, uh, you know, one of my videos on YouTube, I think the Iceland video about uh, the vertical diet has over 7 million views now. And it, it, uh, at the very beginning, I said, we're just going to learn here how to sleep, eat, and train, period. That's it. And we're going to repeat that rewind play repeat and that, that's pretty much all there is to it right uh that's that's really all you need to do uh can you talk a little bit more you know about the content that you put out because as you said you have so much content out there on youtube all for free um and hundreds of thousands of people still buy the vertical diet to get the full details um so is all this information you put out intentionally meant as like a trailer to your, you know, actual product of the vertical diet? It is. Uh, I've just always focused on providing free but valuable information. Videos, podcasts, my rants, articles. I mentioned over 200 seminars, uh, including the one in Iceland, which again has over 7 million views. 
I remember when I did that that uh, that video in Iceland, and my wife, when I got home, my wife said, "You just put your entire vertical diet for free on the internet on a YouTube video." She goes, "Who's going to buy it?" And and I told her, I said, "Just you wait." How many times you guys know this, and everybody in the audience knows this? How many times have we watched a podcast or a video, and at the end of it, been like, "Shit." You couldn't remember all of the stuff if it was a good video with valuable information. Then you had to pull out a piece of paper and watch it again and write it down, and maybe inclined to purchase a product that had even more detail,、uh, so that so you had an outline, you had you know something off of which to work. And the vertical diet provides that. Obviously, I, I provide menu plans and and step by step guidance and、uh, you know grocery shopping lists and all that stuff. So that you have, you know, kind of a,、uh, you know, something that you can,、uh, you know, a workbook from which you can, you can work from that has a ton of information that you probably wouldn't retain. But、uh, you know, I've also responded to over a hundred thousand DMs in the last four years. That's how we connected. You guys sent me a DM. I responded. And、uh, you know, how many guys do that? And I find it to be valuable. I don't get paid anything for that, but I think I create relationships. And、uh, I think if I can give somebody enough good information, then they'll. Uh, then they will、uh, potentially get the vertical diet, which is over 200 pages with over 500 references to peer-reviewed published research. That they'll use it as a resource, you know, just like I do when I buy a book. I, I can refer back to it. We highlight it, you know. We bend the pages and we、uh, we go back and and we you know reread it from time to time. And that's kind of really been the foundation. And then of course the meal prep company is you know it's a service, and if people. Uh, you know, like the concept of the diet—a higher protein,、uh, easy to digest, low FODMAP meals. Then,、uh, then they can, you know, if the if their budget allows, then they can use that service. Yeah. So I just want to quickly shift like the business aspect. Then Ayush is always talking about you. So in terms of the more business aspect, the thing that you do really well is slogans, based on what Ayush said. And now then, whenever I see somebody drinking like a protein shake, I always smile and remember something that Ayush said that you always say shakes are for fakes, eat steak. So then Ayush personally started buying protein powder. He just eats bison instead. That's one of the things that we make fun of him because we don't understand why. It just sounds like a completely random animal. So the slogan that you, this, these slogans, they obviously generate hype around the product, which we talked about earlier. But could you go more in depth on how exactly came up with these slogans and how you think they've helped with your businesses? Yeah, you know, back to shakes or for fakes, eat steaks. I just a lot of folks would come to me and ask me, you know, Stan, what's the best protein powder? And it would be frustrating because there's no magic to any of that. It's food in a can,、uh, and it's inferior to whole food because it lacks the micronutrients.、Uh, it's not doesn't have the same satiety benefit. Doesn't have the iron, the B12, the zinc, the creatine, the creatinine. None of that's in there. So it's not that shakes can't be convenient. I always say that that they're convenient and they taste good. Um, and with respect to bison, just any ruminant animal—beef,、uh, bison, deer—any、uh, any ruminant animal that has a four-chambered stomach that can ferment cellulose、uh, is a is a higher nutrient dense, more easy to digest protein source. So, but you're right, people people remember bumper stickers, as you're aware. And so, you know, shakes are for fakes, eat steaks. It, it, it at least creates a dialogue,、uh, whether you agree with it or not. At least、uh, you know it creates a dialogue. But I've trademarked a few of them.、Um, compliance is the science. That's one that I came up with some years ago in terms of what's the most important thing you can do.、Uh, you know, the best diet's the one you'll follow. I, I've also said that、uh, the best work or the best exercise is the one you'll do, and the best diet's the one you'll follow. And that got me to compliance is the science. If people, you know, any program that they could stick to for an extended period of time would provide them the results that they desired. Just that most people don't consistently do anything for any extended period of time. Uh, I also trademarked the Monster Mash, which was one of the meals that I used. But、uh, I said in a video one time that in the war on obesity, the enemy is all is also the victim. You're at war with yourself. To talk about,、uh, you know, that there's really nobody to blame out here, and and people need help. But at the end of the day, it's the individuals going to ultimately be the individuals' responsibility. Some other quotes that、uh, that I've said on a number of podcasts. And if you're waking up at 4 a.m. to do fasted cardio after four hours of sleep. You're stepping over hundred-dollar bills to pick up nickels, and that's just talking about the importance again of sleep and how it affects your metabolism. I've said、um, sometimes things are truthful but not useful. Things like move more, eat less. Move more, eat less is factual. It's truthful. It's undeniable.、Uh, 
unfortunately, it's not very helpful. So I say it's truthful, not useful. And you have to give people you know, tools to, to eat less. And we could talk about those. Uh, another one, when people start eating healthy food, uh, like the vertical diet, which is intended to be you know, easier on digestion, and then they go back and they grab a, you know, a, a fast food double cheeseburger or something like that. And then they, uh, they tell me that their guts were wrecked as a result. Of my, my response is you stray, you pay. And, uh, you know, once your body like gets used to fried now, that? it, whenever I eat anything fried now, it completely messes up my stomach. Yeah. Like, you stray, you pay. And so I, you know, I laugh about it. Sometimes people initially, they get all mad. They're like, I used to be able to jam down a Carl's junior bacon, double cheeseburger. No problem. Once you start feeling good, you start recognizing better when you feel bad. Uh, a lot of people just don't know what it feels like to feel good because they haven't eaten and exercised and slept consistently well for an extended period of time. Uh, you guys have heard me say, I, I don't eat foods I like, I eat foods that like me, and I make that decision about an hour after I eat. Uh, it's along the same lines, if you stray, you pay. I, I'm pretty picky about the foods I eat uh, because uh, I know how they're gonna feel on me after I eat them. And then with training, I always say the hard shit works better than the easy shit, you know? Anybody can go down and, you know, set up a, a light lat pull down, but jump on the chin up bar, it's just harder. You know, start with the hard shit, start with the squats, not the leg extension. And uh, things that are done to you or for you are rarely as effective as things you do for yourself. And that has to do more with uh, rehab and, uh, and injury prevention and the like. So those are just some quotes that I think the industries that have popularized in the industry that have uh, some benefit for folks. They're easy to remember. So I just want to quickly go back um, to something you mentioned about fitness before we go back to the business aspect, which Nidin will talk more about. And um, you had like these two quotes. It was simple, sensible, and sustainable, and compliance yeah. is a science. Yeah. And you recently posted um, uh, in, you recently posted on Instagram, and it was a picture of you at 18 where you were like in your soccer wrestling phase. You were like small. Yeah. Then 42 when you were in your like competition phase and then 54 mm -hmm. where you are currently. And then it was like, there's no such thing as a 30 day transformation it has to be a lifestyle. And I feel like um, high schoolers, they'll go and they'll be like, oh, you know, I wanna change my body and they'll go work out for like a couple of days. They'll see no changes and then they'll get discouraged and they'll go back to McDonald's eating their Big Mac. So um, if you could just quickly talk about the, like the importance of sticking to something and like what high schoolers can do to like stay motivated so that they don't go back to like eating that unhealthy food. Yeah, motivation is a hard one, brother. I tell you, if I had the answer to that, I mean, you kind of, and that's why I say the best diet's the one you'll follow and the best exercise is the one you'll do. If, if you're doing something that you don't enjoy, uh, you know, a lot of people are looking at the finish line and there is no finish line. This is kind of the point of this conversation. It's not a means to an end. It, it, the, uh, like in the pursuit of happiness, it's, it's not a destination. Uh, that's a journey and the journey has to be uh, rewarding, um, you know, simple, sensible and sustainable. It has to be something that you can, uh, that's part of your lifestyle. Going to the gym needs to be enjoyable. You're going to have to find out, you know, it has to fit within your schedule. Uh, it has to be one of your priorities. You know, say so you could be great at anything, but you can't be great at everything. So you're really going to have to decide is, is going to the gym going to be one of the few things that you're going to excel at or having the physique that you want to have. Uh, and if you want to add more muscle, it's going to take a significant investment of, of time and energy. Uh, so you have to decide how important is that? And uh, is it more important than something else that, that you desire to do? Um, you know, there's a lot of things I'd like to do. I'd love to be able to play the piano and, you know, <laughs> but, uh, I, you know, at one point I wanted to get back into martial arts, but uh, I realized I had so many other things on my table, you know, and then you got your, you know, as you get older, you have kids and a wife and uh, obligations. It's like, you know, there's just, there's only so much you can do. So it needs to be, uh, and I also think we overestimate how much we need to do in terms of bodybuilding. Uh, you know, just three days a week for 40 minutes is, is sufficient to get about 95% of the progress that you're ever going to get, irrespective of how much time you invest. And I, I just think that people assume that you have to do more than, than you do. And there's a genetic predisposition. Some people are more inclined to, uh, to gain muscle at a faster rate than others. And so 
you know, there's a whole lot of factors that are involved with that. But at the end of the day, uh, you don't build muscle in the gym. I, I have an article that I wrote about this some 10 more or more years ago. Um, you know, I kind of talked about the 99% rule and, and that's that eat, sleep and train. All you do in the gym is break down muscle tissue. So if you don't have a consistent sleeping schedule and you aren't eating sufficient calories and enough protein, you're not going to get the benefit of the the work that you did. You're It's just a stimulus. And uh, you actually break down muscle tissue and then you don't build that muscle without adequate sleep, calories and protein. So that becomes as important or more important than the exercise itself or else you're getting a no return on investment. It's a waste of your time to go lift weights and not eat enough food and rest enough to recover from the lifting session. Specifically what you said there about like people thinking, oh, three days a week is not enough. You have like these teenagers, they have nothing else on their plate. So they're going to the gym like six days a week, three hours a day. They're training like, they're doing like 10 exercises per muscle group. They're getting it like from every single angle, every single isolation exercise, they machine hop. Like it, it's pretty bad and that's just not necessary. You know, you can really slim down your exercise portfolio. You can slim down the time you're spending in the gym, focus on other stuff and then if you focus on eat, eat uh, versus if you're focusing too much on training, actually. So, um, no, you're 100% right. And that's a mistake that I've talked about that I made when I first started out. I was training two hours a day, six days a week, doing every exercise in Arnold Schwarzenegger's Encyclopedia Bodybuilding. And I was eating the food that the guy behind the counter at Gold's Gym was eating to prep for a bodybuilding show, which means he was dieting. And he was eating tuna out of a can and rice cakes. And so, I just assumed, hey, this is the way you do it. You, you build muscle by lifting weights and you eat like a bird. And I hardly gained anything. I told you I, I was about 140 when I started and two years later, I was 158. That's not a lot of weight to gain and you're in two years of training with the amount of time and energy I invested into it. And then I finally met a, a gym owner who was also a competitor and, a, and a, a judge and he flipped the script on me. He told me to train every other day and to start eating adequate calories and I immediately started gaining weight, significant weight. Yeah. And so I have in the ebook, I put uh, evidence-based guidelines for hypertrophy that goes through all the science of sets time and reps and load and uh, frequency and volume, uh, intensity, uh, rest periods. I go down step-by-step step and tell people exactly how they should train to uh, you know the minimum effective volume, the maximal recoverable volume. Uh, all of it's in there so that uh, people get the right stimulus. And then, of course, I talk about the demands of calories and protein and how to get those in. So one thing that I quickly wanted to touch on was I'm a huge Shark Tank geek. So as soon as Ayush told me that, like, you you were on Shark Tank, I immediately went to um, HBO and watched your episode. So one of the things that I saw that I commonly see is we see people get deals on Shark Tank, but we never see what happens afterwards, how exactly the sharks follow up with their the people that they invest in. So I I remember that Damon John invested $50,000 for 33 and a third percent of your company. So how exactly does his like, how exact, to what extent do they actually help you with the rest of like growing your business? Because now that they have like a third of a stake in it, they have like a huge part of helping out with it. So how... So if you can just talk more about your experience on Shark Tank, first of all, and then how exactly Damon helped you grow your business, that would be great. Yeah, I'll tell you this for those people who are interested, because it'll be a, a, a better, it'll be a longer, more detailed explanation. I did a video called Shark Tank behind the scenes, one of my rhinos rants, and I talked through the whole process from the first application to visiting them to do a, uh, they had a live audition here in Las Vegas. Uh, you got one minute to pitch your product and then you and thousands of other people walked out of there not knowing anything, waiting for the phone call, ultimately talking to a producer, having to visit them again to do a second pitch and then, uh, you know, submitting just oodles of information, tax returns and, and financials and profit and loss paperwork. And this took uh, multiple months uh, going over a potential, you know, for a uh, not even knowing if you're going to appear. They tell you that right up front. They said, look, there's no guarantee uh, that you're going to appear on the show. Even after you get to LA and you pitch to the producers before you ever pitch to the Sharks, there's no guarantee you'll pitch to the Sharks. Uh, half of those people get cut. And 
then the next day, if they do put you through and you pitch to the Sharks, you're also told that just because you get a deal, it doesn't mean you're going to go on TV. Only about 80% of those deals go on TV. Um, and you're right. Even though you pitch a deal to a Shark and you strike a deal on TV, uh, the real negotiations begin after that point. Then you have to get on a conference call and you have to talk with your uh, the shark and uh, you know I partnered with Damon John, and you got to sell them again because they have some say into which deals they made get uh, aired on TV. Uh, not a hundred percent, but obviously, if they invest in a company, one of the major sources of marketing is that airing on television. It goes to ten million homes, and that's the biggest chunk of marketing that you could possibly hope for. I mean, imagine the cost of that. So. Uh, yeah, you have to you have to renegotiate and sell that deal uh, to the shark even after uh, doing that live on on uh, on the show, and then subsequent to that, uh, like in Damon's case, he has a team of people that works on uh, just trying to to get your products into their connection, their stores, their retail locations, or what have you, and uh, on, and marketing. And so I worked with them uh, on that kind of thing. And of course, I already had a marketing plan, and I already had good exposure and. Uh, social media exposure, but uh, it, it's it, it was uh, it's interesting. I have to say this about Shark Tank and just about any home run like that. Uh, a lot of folks will put a ton of energy into these home runs, and very few people. I think there were forty thousand people that applied, and somewhere around one hundred and twenty ended up on TV. And so that's a rare uh, that that was you know that was a rare opportunity. I've I've tried to get on other shows without success. Um, the Apprentice, uh, you know, but uh, it's really what you do every day. It's the singles. It's accumulating uh, the singles, not not the home runs. And sometimes when you're swinging so hard, looking for you know these big deals, you end up losing sight of the fact that accumulating a lot of uh, of singles and doing consistent marketing is really your bread and butter. Okay, so you said that there's like an intensive pre-recording process that you have to go through where you're submitting like your profit and loss statements. And that's very, very important for like an investor who's looking into it because one of the things that Ayush and I do, we do like a stock market game essentially in our school where we have to like analyze the same profit and loss statements and we know what we're going to invest before like the actual, I would say the competition goes on. So in the same way, do the sharks know what they're going to invest in or if they're going to invest in before the cameras turn on, is it truly like an actual negotiation cycle? Because one thing that I saw on TikTok was there's this group of like, there's the same group of people who are like trying to sell coolers for like the beach and like trying to keep beers uh, very cool. And they say that it's almost like an hour long discussion between the sharks going back and forth where you're trying to figure out an offer with them and the shark tank cuts out and puts maybe six minutes of it. So how intense is the actual negotiation and how does the entire investing process work? Because you obviously mentioned that after the sharks make the deal, it's not set in stone yet. That's just like, it's just like a handshake and a hug pretty much that you see on TV. And I've seen like online that many deals don't go through after the actual uh, taping is over just because like either the business owner just doesn't like the deal and they just want to look good on TV or just something happens. So could you talk a little bit about the whole investing process and how exactly it works specifically for Shark Tank and if the sharks know before the recording if they're going to invest or not? Yeah, you're absolutely right. I talk about that in that rant, uh, Shark Tank behind the scenes. The sharks don't see any of this information that the producers are getting. They're just uh, really uh, kind of doing their due diligence to make sure that you're a legitimate business and there's no conflicts of interest. And, uh, criminal history or anything like that. Just want to make sure. Um, so the sharks only know your name and maybe the name of your company. They have no information other than that. And you hit the nail right on the head. When you walk out there, when you watch the video, there's like five or six minutes worth of questions or maybe not even that much. That's a 40 minute process when you're live standing there with the bright lights under you under the hot heat with sweat going down your brow. And the sharks are drilling you with questions and they're uh, they're asking each other questions and they're coming at you hard. I kind of figured about midway through that they were playing both sides. Uh, each shark would say something uh, that, that expressed some interest in my product and each shark would say something negative about my product or service. 
And I started to realize about halfway through that that provides the editors, uh, you know, video to depending on the direction that that this thing goes. That, that's at least that was what my interpretation was. Is that, uh, but nonetheless, it was a lot of questions, very detailed questions about your marketing, about your history of sales, uh, about your product, manufacturing, everything that you can imagine. Uh, and, it, and it's it's long and it's stressful. The one thing that they say to you before you walk down the carpet to stand in front of the sharks, right before the doors open, they say, don't lock your knees. That was the last bit of advice because you stand out there long enough. They've, they've had people just <laughs> just fall right over. It's It can be pretty stressful. And the, the lights are hot and those people are coming at you one question after another. And sometimes somebody will ask a question, you can't even answer it in time and somebody else is jumping in and it just turns into kind of a big free-for-all, as you know, from watching the show. I watched the show many, many times for probably five years uh, and, and watched the episodes and took notes prior to my appearing. And I had a pretty good idea about what everybody do, did, what, what kind of businesses they purchased, what kind of questions they would ask. And I'd already prepared my answers. Uh, I had my family sit in the living room with pictures. I printed out large pictures of the shark's faces and had them hold the picture in front of their face. And so I, I could, and I was in a, and I had a, a light shining on me and I was standing in front of them in the living room and they were all sitting there just like the sharks do. And I had, uh, I did my presentation uh, probably 50 times and had them ask me a whole host of different questions that I responded to. So I was well prepared. I think that you, from watching the video, you saw the presentation was pretty, uh, pretty polished. And that's just because I, I practiced, I rehearsed it a lot. And I kind of learned that from the bodybuilding world and, uh, that, and even in powerlifting is I would go to the location that I was going to compete at and I would get on stage uh, a day before and I would practice and, and have video of me. Uh, when I competed in powerlifting, I would find out exactly what equipment they were using, whether it was a monolift, what kind of bar, what kind of plates, and I would train with those to make sure that, that nothing happened that I wasn't prepared for when I got there. And that was the same with, with Shark Tank. I felt prepared. I tell a little story in the in the video that's, that's worth uh, listening to Who's the producer, uh, Burnett, uh, of uh, Shark Tank? Mark Burnett. The the day, is that is that correct? It's been many years, I, I think it is. I think so, yeah. Yeah, it's been many years, but when I was, the day before you present to the Sharks, you, pre you present to all the producers, all the staff. And this was on a Monday morning, and I guess Sunday they had won two Emmys for Shark Tank, the year that I uh, presented. And I wasn't aware of that. I didn't follow kind of Hollywood behind the scenes. I, I just was a Shark Tank fan. And so Monday morning, I, I go out there to present and I had to drag all my own stuff down, that 800 pound tire and that 200 pound dumbbell and all those weights for deadlifting. I had to hook a trailer up to my car and, or to my Hummer and haul it down there. And I had to load it all in myself. And, uh, uh, and then I had to roll it out onto the, it was a big concrete floor. It wasn't, a, it wasn't the actual stage. It was in a different, uh, different venue. Uh, it was just a giant warehouse, you know, in the, on the Hollywood set. And so we set it all up and I was getting ready to do the presentation as I had practiced so many times before. And this guy, I'm going to say this guy stands up and he's got jeans and a t-shirt on and, uh, and he walks over and he says, we're going to have to move the tire over here. We're going to have to move the weights over there. And I'm like, no, 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 hold on, wait. And I pulled my phone out and I had pictures on my phone of the camera angles that I had, had had watched prior episodes. And I said, there's gonna, and I pointed it, I said, there's gonna be a camera right there. And it's gonna see this tire come up and then it's gonna go boom. And I'm gonna be standing right there in front of the camera. And, and the guy looks at me for a second and he goes, okay. And he turns around and walks and sits down. I didn't realize it at the time, but that was Mark Burnett. And I was telling the producer of the show how to lay out everything according to where the cameras were going to be. Uh, he probably thought it was somewhat arrogant. I didn't know who he was, but uh, I had already planned for all that. I'd accounted for it. And uh, so that was, it was kind of an interesting side note to, to everything that happened going up to that point. Yeah. So mentioning the tire and the dumbbell and everything like that, most of the Shark Tank like pitches, they're really, really boring. There's like a couple of them that are, they have like the physical product with them, but some of them are really, really boring. But one thing that you did was it was super engaging how like you were trying, how you lifted the tire and flipped it over. And then the sharks were like, oh, why don't, why doesn't one of 
uh, Damon or somebody do that. So I felt like it was a very like very interactive episode with the sharks itself. So did your investment actually go through in the end with Damon? And where exactly did the investment go? And to what extent did the actual investment help your business? Yeah, I did. Damon uh, agreed to a, a deal with me, and uh, uh, I didn't need uh, money, but uh, uh, you know, we we agreed to a share for him. I had already, uh, you know, I had already sold, uh, you know, over a hundred thousand coolers by that time, and I was, uh, uh, I had product, and I didn't have any debt, and uh, I was already, you know, doing pretty well. So, their biggest help was, uh, I think, Damon's connections with manufacturers overseas allowed me to make the next evolution of the cooler, which was that cooler sports. It was the a smaller, uh, more, uh, I think, uh, just kind of a better aesthetic looking product. And that was the one that ultimately uh, was more successful. And I was able to, to use his manufacturing connections to get that done uh, in an expedited fashion. One of the hardest things about uh, making products overseas is quality control and, and pricing. and. Uh, just length of time it takes with the um, language barrier and everything else, particularly when you're engineering a, a particular product and there's lots of, uh, uh, you know, there's lots of different types of plastics and concerns for, uh, you know, melting or cracking or it's just, it's endless. You, you have to anticipate that any of these investments that you make will take longer and cost more than you ever, uh, than you ever thought possible and be able to weather those storms. And, uh, you know, fortunately, we were we were able to do that. Most of my business was from expos, traveling around and doing a lot of shows, appearing at uh, the Arnold Classic and the uh, Europas and the uh, the Mr. Olympias. I would sell you know tens of thousands of dollars worth of product at those shows. So when COVID hit uh, and all those shows shut down, it had a significant impact. And then with the um, with the trade war with China, when uh, when Donald Trump engaged in that with them, my cost of goods skyrocketed, uh, tariffs skyrocketed, uh, and so it became more and more difficult to uh, to uh, to maintain a profit. Selling products like that, uh, as you guys can imagine, is uh, is very expensive upfront. You have to buy the product in advance. You have to obviously pay for the tooling, which is well over a hundred thousand purchase a significant quantity of products in order to get the price point that you want. Um, you know, multiple containers, 40 foot containers containing, you know, tens of thousands of coolers, ship them over here, store them. Then you have to sell them to distributors who sell them to retailers who sell them to customers. And you could just start to chip away at the profit margins piece by piece. Uh, so it's, uh, those kinds of, of, of businesses are, are small margins. You have to be very comfortable with the fact that you're not going to get rich quick off of something like that. Uh, but it's uh, nonetheless, it's still if you can get to prices right and sell enough of it, then uh, you know you can you can still make a, a good return. Okay, so we're coming to an end. Uh, we're coming to the end of this podcast where we've talked about everything like your past or your past your past experiences, your fitness journey, and your the entre entrepreneurial aspect of you, where you've owned and started many companies. And one of the staples of our podcast at the end is where we ask the person we have brought on like a tips question. And that is basically where you can give any advice to the high schoolers listening. It can be about anything from mental health, fitness, bodybuilding to um, business. So um, if you could just like answer our tips question and just give any advice to the high schoolers listening, that'd be great. Yeah, well, I think we covered a lot of important stuff just in terms of lifestyle, but I'll tell you, there's probably, uh, I'll give you my, my top three or four progress killers. I think a lot of people have dreams and a, a, a dream without a, an actual plan is, uh, or I say a goal without a plan is just a dream. Uh, I think the number one, killer of people's goals is procrastination uh, people just just don't they tend to put off uh till tomorrow what they can do today the next one's indecision i said you could be great at anything but you can't be great at everything and so you're going to have to ultimately decide what you're going to pursue you can't serve two masters or chase two rabbits as they say uh so procrastination indecision another one's fear of rejection and you see a lot of that people are just so afraid particularly with social media out there and, and, and all the you, know, you just can't avoid negative feedback it's just impossible and so you just gotta you just gotta go out and do it put yourself out there uh what do they say is uh 
you know, you're just better off. You're just a lot better off trying and failing than failing to try is really what, what where that comes down. And the last one is what I call three minute enthusiasm. People get motivated. Uh, and in today's quick social media world, uh, you can get motivated all day long, every day and never do anything. And I worry about that. You know, these bumper stickers, everybody's got, you know, they're posting memes on their Instagram, you know, with whatever motivational meme for the day. But are you actually, you know, accomplishing anything? Are you procrastinating? Are you indecisive? Are you, do you have fear of rejection? And are you just talking about, uh, you know, being motivated? I say it's 1% inspiration, 99% perspiration. And, you know, until you actually get in there and start doing the work, uh, you know, I'm just concerned that people live off of uh, off of this three minute motivation that they're just trying to get excited to do something, but never actually doing anything. So in my mind, those are probably some of the biggest progress killers right there. And if you could write those down and just master them, don't procrastinate, make a decision. Don't give a shit about what anybody else thinks about your goals and uh, you know, stop looking around for other people to give you validation and, and motivation. Uh, it's your goal. Go for it and start actually making progress. I think one of the biggest mistakes people made, and I made this mistake whenever I was writing my book, it's a big undertaking to write a book, is that I was looking at the totality of the project. You know, this was going to be over 200 pages with 500 resources. Uh, nobody wants to sit down and start a project that, that that's, that's that big. You know, you got to go zero to one. And so I just... You know, I just had to sit down. I had to assign myself one hour a morning. I woke up early before the kids and I, I just said, I'm going to spend one hour just slowly moving forward with this book. I'm going to start with an outline and then I'm going to start writing one chapter at a time. And uh, as soon as I got away from looking at the totality of the project and started actually uh, making a plan, a step-by-step -step plan, then it started coming together and I was able to, to release the book. And, it, and I ended up releasing it. It was the number one uh, new release bestseller on Amazon for the four weeks that it was in the category for diet books. And so we've been, you know, hugely uh, grateful for, for its success. Yeah, thank you so much for all your time, Stan. And I, I like what you said about there about, you know, just focusing on what you need to do today instead of looking at, you know, the long-term goal, because that can often become super overwhelming. For example, I think there's that like famous quote, like if you're trying to build a wall, just focus on laying one brick as perfectly yeah. as you can today, rather than focusing on looking at the entire wall. Um, but overall, I think this was an excellent podcast. I think a lot of people in the fitness industry, you know, due to the rise of like social media influencers there, they post like one workout on Instagram a week, they get famous, they make millions of dollars, but I think the thing with you is you have such an in-depth understanding of you know business like fitness everything that it was really engaging talking to you for all of us because you know rishi and i both focused on like the business and fitness aspects and nitin's obviously super into business so we really appreciate taking uh, you taking your time to do this for us thanks guys appreciate it that's our show for today now roll the credits High School Not So Much a Musical is hosted by Ayush Agarwal, Nitin Jaladanki, and Rishi Sinha. Narration by Samhit Padala. Music from Louis Luang Relaxation Cafe, Tune Pocket, and Infraction. If you like the show, please recommend it to your friends and family. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.